As you remain standing, you can grab your Bibles once again and turn to James chapter 3 is where we find ourselves in our ongoing evening study through this great letter of James. We're coming to the back half now as we make our way through the first 12 verses of chapter 3 tonight. Uh, 12 verses that are, I assume, for many of you in the room, uh, quite well known, and I trust for all of us in the room will uh, bring us a, a good measure of spiritual conviction and, by the end, comfort tonight. So let me read these 12 verses. You can find them in the chairback Bibles if you have one on page 1012. But let me read this text for us tonight and I pray that God would bless our study and we'll continue on. So here now as God speaks to you through His Word, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member. Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. (coughs) Our great God, we do pray to you tonight, asking that you would help us to hear what we must in this great word of truth. That we would be hearers, not only, but also doers of the word. That you would sanctify our tongues. That you would let our lips be always for the love of Jesus Christ that we might be careful with our speech, always circumspect in our conduct, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We may be seated. I've told a number of you before about my paternal grandfather. He, for many years, was the head of the Dallas Crime Lab, and so most of my Grandpa Stone stories relate to matters of forensic science, but if you ever were to ask me for other stories related to Grandpa Stone, I could give you many sports stories, for he was a very athletic man. He played minor league baseball in his youth, and so when his time at the Dallas Crime Lab was winding down, you could often find him on Saturdays at these softball complexes throughout the Metroplex, as he belonged to this traveling old man softball team called the Greyhounds that would compete all around the southwest region in these quite well-to-do tournaments, and I remember going to them a number of times as a young bat boy, and one year when I would think I was in the middle school age, 
he and a few other teammates of his were members at a very large church in the Metroplex, and they had set up this exhibition game between the Greyhounds and the best team this megachurch could field, softball team that included not just members, but also staff members at that church. And this church was, at the time, I think one of the largest in the entire Metroplex, one of the most influential, actually, in the entire nation. And so it was a very good softball game that actually took place at this field at this nearby church. And it was such a big deal that I had taken a few friends to it that we were going to watch, you know, my grandfather in his 60s play against all these young bucks. And it was a spell-binding account for a variety of different reasons. But what I remember most, still to this day, about that event, that exhibition, was not being spellbound by what was happening on the field. The batting, the fielding, the pitching, the the base running. It was by the antics in one of the dugouts, particularly words that were coming from someone on the other team that belonged to this church. Words actually from the man who was the senior pastor of this church. And a friend of mine, seated next to me by about the eighth inning, after a blow-up of sorts, said, You're telling me he's really the pastor of this church? You would never know that by the way he talks. And we come to a text tonight in James that's going to confront us, and I trust for all of us in here tonight, cut us to the quick. Because no doubt, in every one of our lives, much more recently than we probably would want others to know, we have behaved with our mouth in such a way that someone could look into our life and listen to our words and say, you're telling me that person's a Christian? You would never know it by the way they talk. That, and that James is turning his attention with such unrelenting force in these 12 verses to the tongue shouldn't be surprising if you've been following along with his teaching so far. This is a book that's all about Christ's school of discipleship. He wants us to know, James does, uh, what it means to genuinely and wholeheartedly follow after the Lord Jesus Christ as one of his disciples. And he's already told us in chapter 1, in two different places, that following Jesus Christ in faith very much means following him faithfully with your tongue. If you glance back to verse 19 of chapter 1, he tells us, let every person be quick to hear, And slow to speak. And if that wasn't convicting enough, he goes on to say with his usual James-like passion and fervor, verse 26 of chapter 1, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. What you do with your tongue will make your devotion worthwhile. What you do with your tongue might make your devotion worthwhile. Completely and utterly worthless. And it should be, in some ways, a sobering reality because the researchers tell us that the average human being speaks something between 10,000 to 20,000 words a day. So if you just slice that right down the middle, that means when you wake up tomorrow morning, children, you have confronting you potentially 15,000 ways to sin in just a short amount of time that you're awake. Other people would say that the average man spends about What is it? 20% of his life talking. The average woman about 25% of her life talking. So much of your life then given over to the potential of sin. So the simple theme that you get from these verses before us tonight is taming the tongue. We might call it taming the untamable. 
And what you're going to want to see along the way is James is very clear on the nature of how disastrous and devastating the tongue can be. I'm going to give you three simple words to kind of guide our way through the passage together tonight. The first word is accountability. The second word is potency. And the third word in verse 9 through 12 is consistency. Consistency. We're wanting to understand what God has to say about our use of words. So first, in verses 1 and 2, I want you to consider the teacher's accountability. Look at verse 1, what we're told. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. If you read through James in one setting, you might feel the way that many have often felt when reading James. It's as though he seemingly just dances with no exact obvious connection from one topic and subject to the next. Because if you notice where he ended chapter 2, where we left off two weeks ago, he was focusing on true faith, living faith, proving itself with its works. Verse 26 of chapter 2 says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. But then he immediately goes in to start talking about teachers being judged with greater strictness. And you want to say, at least I want to say to James, what's the connection? in your mind, between a living faith and these teachers being judged? Well, like many parts of James, it's not entirely clear. It's possible that he's moving us from works of faith to words of faith, or perhaps those verses I read earlier from chapter 1, he's wanting to return to what he understands is a central part of Christ's school of discipleship, which is how we talk. And speaking about teachers gives him an easy, ordinary segue into how we talk, because what do teachers do but talk? Their vocation, my vocation, very much is just speaking. And the challenge, of course, that then belongs to teachers is they're judged with greater strictness. And you want to even notice James' humility in verse 1 as he simply says, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Uh, We don't know exactly, but it seems as though perhaps this audience that James is writing to was a church community, a gathering of believers scattered throughout uh, the regions to where this letter would have gone, where many people were wanting in churches, many people were wanting to be learners. I'm sorry, many people wanting to be teachers, not learners. And he's wanting to correct some of that desire by warning them solemnly that there's this great gravity that belongs to what I think he's talking about most immediately is the gospel ministry. Uh, we do know from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, that anyone who desires the office of an overseer desires a noble task. And it's the very nobility of ministry that leads to the severity of judgment. Uh, I've been in settings before where I feel like I've been in a room of, of men who have been wanting to pursue the gospel ministry, and I almost feel duty-bound in my conscience to warn some of them, perhaps you should not do this. Because you will be judged all the more strictly. God has put his word into your heart. That's the word he says you must preach it and teach it clearly and courageously. And if you don't or if you won't, I'm going to judge you with greater strictness. The words that are your vocation are words that will in every way be put under the microscope of an increased judgment of God. And so if you're a member in here tonight, Uh, This is a reason that you should pray for your teachers here in this church. You have many in this church. You can think about the men every single Lord's Day, not just in the evening, but also the morning that stand behind this pulpit or behind that table and, and teach and speak. Men that are going to be judged with greater strictness. Men that have increased accountability before the Lord. And pray that they would be faithful 
that their words and their teaching would be pure. But what you'll see is essentially what James seems to be doing between verse 1 and 2 is using this specific audience, the teachers, as an opportunity to lead into a more general audience, which is all of God's people. For look at what he says in verse 2, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So we all stumble in many ways. No teacher is perfect, no doubt. He's never going to be able to say everything perfectly and purely. But if he was, he could bridle his tongue. Uh, that word there is a perfect. It's an important one in James. It showed up all the way at the very beginning of this letter. It talked about considering suffering and trials as joy because it's what God is using to make us perfect, complete, totally mature in Jesus Christ. And so what we saw in chapter 1 is, is suffering is an ordinary way that God grows us in this maturity or what we could call perfection. Chapter 2, we see that it's these works of faith that demonstrate, of course, our increasing maturity in Jesus Christ. And now in perhaps the most simple and quintessential way is he's saying, James is, our words reveal our maturity. Because what he's telling us is if you can bridle your tongue, you can bridle anything. If you can control your tongue, you can control any part of your body. And why that's important as his instruction and even warnings getting ready to continue. What you need to know, James is saying from the outset, even back in chapter 1, is not so much godliness revealed in your speech by what you say, as sometimes the most acutely revealed in what you don't say. That you bridle your tongue. You don't say anything. Sometimes the simplest way to grow in holiness and godliness is to take James at his word and be slow to speak. Sometimes you actually shouldn't say anything. The teacher's accountability then leads us, as he's thinking about the power of the tongue, into the tongue's potency in verse 3 through 8. If you were with us when we began in the morning our series through the Psalms of Ascent, I told you we were looking at Psalm 120 of this sermon uh, many summers ago that I heard as a as a high school student at the time in this family camp in Michigan where my family used to summer for a series of years. and uh, This college leader at the time had preached a sermon one evening, probably something like Wednesday or Thursday night of the week, and he had opened up to the very text before us tonight. And he had preached a sermon, and it was one of the very few sermons of the thousands and thousands and thousands of sermons that I've heard that still remains indelibly etched upon my soul because he simply said from the outset, you may have heard it before from a parent or a well-meaning leader. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And he said, essentially, I want you to know that that is just not true. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will hurt more than anything else. And that's what James is actually underscoring in verses 3 through 8 with unusual illustrative quality. Because if you just look at verse 3 and 4, he gives us two metaphors to understand what he's after. First, if you notice the verse 3, he talks about this horse's bit. This bit, this small piece of metal in the mouth that guides the horse, that gives it its energy, that gives it its direction. Then he switches the metaphor, you'll see in verse 4, to think about this rudder in a ship. Kids, you can think about this massive ship, the Titanic. And one tiny little piece, this rudder, Guides the ship where it goes, where it ought not to go. He's saying that the power of the instrument 
is all out of proportion to its size. Thus, notice verse 5, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. And I think the boasting here of, of great things is basically the tongue's ability to boast in its own power. Boast in its own power. So I wonder how many of you know the power of the tongue. Maybe you know the power of one complaint or one criticism that seemingly can ruin not just your day, but it seems to ruin months, perhaps even years, that you just can't forget it. Or positively, I trust that you know how one simple encouragement might be sufficient to keep you sustaining and persevering and enduring through incredible difficulty and hardship. And so what James now does, if you notice the end of verse 5 through verse 8, is pile up image after image to help you understand how potent and powerful the tongue is. So notice, he begins by telling us in verse 5 and 6 that it's a fire. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. If you look even to the end of the following verse, or actually in verse 6, I'm sorry, set on fire by hell is the tongue. I trust you know that even these wildfires that have swept through the western parts of the United States always had one small ignition point, one simple spark, one simple flame let loose, suddenly now devastating not just counties, seemingly states, neighborhoods, and countless homes. A simple word can destroy just as simple as a spark can create a giant conflagration. Notice also verse 6, we're told it's a world, a world of unrighteousness. Earlier this week, I pulled up a microscopic image of a tongue. And if you were to do this later on, it might be somewhat interesting to some of you. What you would see is, it almost looks like a world. It genuinely does. A world unto itself that's taken from a science fiction novel, this tongue as a world of ability in unrighteousness. And what James seems to be meaning by that is all of the evil, all of the sin that belongs to unrighteousness can all come through the tongue. Perhaps you can later on this week just meditate how you can break every single one of the Ten Commandments just by what you say. A world of unrighteousness belongs to the tongue. You see verse 6 also calls it a stain. As it said, it's set among our members, staining the whole body. You know, I went through a period of time in my life where I had a genuine fear of wearing white shirts such as I'm wearing tonight because it always seemed that I would get a stain on it at a meal. And then I felt so terribly awkward the rest of the meal with this giant stain somewhere on my shirt. And the tongue has the ability to stain, notice, the whole body. The whole body, such as the potent power of the tongue. Verse 7, you'll notice, further calls it a restless evil. A restless evil. Maybe you think about the book of Job where we're told at the beginning chapters of that great story that uh, the enemy of God's people, Satan, he's seemingly just restlessly wandering around the world looking for someone to devour. And it's almost as though James is taking up that image and quality and component and saying that's part of what the tongue's trouble and potent power is too. It's this restless evil always looking to rip apart its enemies to defend in pride its own selfish ambitions. So you'll see verse 8 further says, the tongue is full of deadly poison. You know, kids, I don't know if you're like me, whenever you think about something being full of deadly poison, I immediately think about a snake, something that's ready to coil against what it doesn't like. 
and emit its venom. It's poison to do harm. And how often the tongue is the exact same. So it's not surprising, notice then almost the summary statement that begins verse 8. No human being can tame the tongue. It's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? Because if you notice verse 7, he basically uses this language that you find all throughout Scripture that is essentially sweeping in all of the animal kingdom in a few phrases, saying that all the animals of the world have been tamed. But that muscle, that is the tongue, no human can tame it. You know, students, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? You can tame a dog, you can tame a cat, you can tame a whale, you can tame an elephant. People have even tamed lions, genuinely. But James says, who can tame a tongue such as its power? And if you understand these images and just the bleak reality that they paint, it wouldn't be surprising if James was saying, such are the tongues of non-Christians, the unregenerate world. But he's actually saying, this is our tongues that belong to Christ's church, which leads to the final section, the Christian's inconsistency. Notice verse 9 and 10. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. remember years ago listening to a sermon by a man that has been very kind to me over the years. and He was remarking on this passage. And he wondered aloud if uh, this use of the tongue is what he called, quote, the distinctly evangelical sin. And he continued saying in this message delivered at a conference, how commonplace it seems to be to hear a fellow Christian's name mentioned in some context or other, And the first words of response demean his reputation, belittle him, distance him from acceptance into the fellowship, although this is a brother for whom Christ died. And isn't that so true? Perhaps even in a simple local church like ours, the first time someone's name is mentioned, a church member in Christian's mind can immediately race to, well, did you know what they did last year? Did you know that they often say this, do this? Or, I've heard this along the way. This great inconsistency, isn't there? James is marveling even at the ability of Christians to speak in such a way, which is why he pours forth more illustration. Notice verse 11 and 12. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. A redeemed, regenerate, renewed heart can still curse brothers and sisters in Christ. And James says it doesn't make any sense, does it? But such is the potent, mysterious power of the untamable tongue. You know, the old manuals of preaching that come from our tradition and heritage. Centuries ago, they would speak about the importance of application in preaching. In a very striking way, they would say that you never truly begin to preach until you've applied the word to God's people. And William Perkins, who's one of the fathers of of Protestant preaching, certainly in our tradition, he would advocate for application in a sermon that he would, quote, encourage that rips up the conscience, to plow through in conviction the soul's heart in order that it might be readied and fertilized for the remedy of the gospel that's found in and Jesus Christ himself. And 
Now, as I was meditating on this passage throughout the week, I thought how surely my mind is not the only one in the room this evening that's going to be ripped up. Because who can stand before the Lord and say, yes, I have tamed the tongue. There's so many things, aren't there, seemingly in the Christian life that you can almost tame. But the tongue is this uncontrollable reality. It so often seems that yes, it does bless, but yes, it also curses. Yes, it does encourage, but so quickly it tears down. So what I want you to do as we begin to close is notice two simple things from this passage, conviction and comfort, that you might apply them to your own life. So simply, first of all, see that devastation too often comes from your tongue. Devastation too often comes from your tongue. Clearly, James is assuming it. It's almost as though he wants to grab the face of his hearers and fix their gaze upon the sins that belong to the mouth. And verse after verse, when perhaps you've had this with a child before, when you're correcting them, disciplining them, you, know, you hold them by the face, saying, look at me, and they just want to look anywhere else. And you hold them ever firmer. No, listen, this is really important. And James is doing the same thing, isn't he? Verse after verse, image after image, warning after warning. Listen, this is a very big deal. The devastation and destruction that comes from Christians' tongues. So I wonder what pours forth from your tongue most often. Maybe it's complaint. Maybe it's comfort. Perhaps it's frustration. Maybe it's even fury. I do hope it's increasingly faith. Every person will stand before the Lord already convicted in their own conscience about the devastation that the tongue has wrought. Some of you know that personally. As I said earlier, one simple word even can lodge its way into your soul and for decades it never dislodges itself. Seemingly paralyzing you in bitterness and anger. Devastation too often comes from your tongue. It's the ripping up of the conscience that we must feel. But the balm of the gospel and the remedy of God's comfort is sanctification can come to your tongue. Now what's interesting is the way James kind of works itself out in this letter. He seemingly at the end of this section leaves us dangling there with just conviction hanging without an answer. You're going to have to get to chapter 4 before you start to feel his application of the gospel. But we can race there together this evening sanctification that's ours in Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed, didn't he? Father, sanctify them in truth. So how is your tongue going to be sanctified but through God's truth? Truth that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. So you don't need to turn there, but certainly it's a verse that I would encourage you to write down and, and meditate on. We've studied it in years past here at Redeemer. Isaiah chapter 50. It speaks prophetically of the Messiah to come, the suffering servant who is going to be on the way. And verse 4 says of Jesus Christ, The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Here is the man who has tamed the tongue. Because God can do it, can't he? How? He's given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens my ear. He awakens me to hear as those who are taught. God's truth sanctifies his people's tongue. If you come to Jesus Christ in faith, what 
you'll see more and more is the sanctification of your tongue. As long as God's word is growing more and more in your heart. So perhaps at the beginning of this new year, maybe the great goal of your life should be to wake morning by morning. That you would meet with Christ through his word. And what I promise you, you will find is the most stupendous and supernatural thing happening. The untamable starts getting tamed. Let's pray together. Father, we remember this evening that our Lord Jesus Christ warned us that we will have to give an account for every careless word that we have spoken. And we do know that we have spoken many, even this day, on your holiest of days. And for such sins we are sorry. And Lord, we pray that such grief and a sorrow over our sin would only increase our desire to come to you for the forgiveness that you provide, the grace that covers us, but also the grace that empowers us to walk in purity, that our speech and our language might always be for building up, never tearing down, that it might give grace to those who hear as fits the occasion. So do increasingly, by your word and spirit, give us the tongue of your Son, that we might sing your praises and extend your mercy. And we pray it all in his precious name. Amen.